as a pastor, I know no matter if you are exploring Christianity, if you're an agnostic, an atheist, if you are a Buddhist or a Sikh or a Muslim, or if you follow Jesus, one question as a human being that you wrestle with in your life, some point in your life, is this question, who am I? Who am I? It's an identity question. It's a question that most of us, you know, sometimes spend a lot of our early 20s or maybe early 30s wrestling with, trying to figure out who we are, what we're supposed to do. You know, sometimes we bypass this question or try to bypass this question by just jumping into university and getting into a degree of some sort and trying to figure it out as we go. I might have or might not have done that. Uh, you know, only to like switch your degree halfway through because you realize you're not good at biology. But um, some of us might try to bypass that question by jumping into a career right out of high school. You know, a steady income, a job that makes you money. And somewhere, somewhere down the line, maybe midlife, you kind of wake up one morning and you're asking yourself, like, what am I doing with my life, right? Who am I? Who has God called me to be? Or what's my purpose? Matthew, uh, one of his disciples, wrote down this account, this eyewitness account of all these different events that took place. And what we find here in this context of this story, this passage that we're about to take apart, is really Jesus asking his disciples a couple of verses before, who do you think I am? It's this whole story of identity in some sense, but the question is being posed to his disciples about who they think Jesus is. And we're not going to get into that, so to speak, but it's interesting that Peter, in this context of the story, he confesses who Jesus is. He says, you're the son of God. And Jesus answers him in this unique way where he's like, hey, Peter, you only know that, this is my paraphrase, because the Father revealed it to you. There's something to that. And I want you to tuck that into the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it in a second. But it's interesting enough that in this passage of Jesus' identity, we actually figure out the answer to this question. But to read Matthew 16, 24, once again, Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves. The first time I read that passage and came across this uh, famous verse when it comes to following Jesus, I did not like that idea. Deny yourself, right? Coming after Jesus, what he's saying is, if you want to become one of my followers, first thing that needs to go is yourself. That's why I had a problem with that. Meaning forget about your desires and your will for your life. Forget about your dreams. Die to what you want. And most of us in this room, growing up in this North American Western culture, that probably grates up against us a little bit, right? Especially if you don't have a full understanding or maybe you're even hearing this passage for the first time. Why is that? Well, in our culture, we're not told to deny ourselves, but express ourselves. The official title to this identity formation uh, is called expressive individualism or goes by different other names that you might have heard. But expressive individualism is this term that I get from the sociologist named Robert Bella. And so with this quote, he explains exactly what this is, okay? 
it'll be on the screen. Our culture does not believe we learn or become who we are by suppressing our individual needs for those of the community or family. Rather, each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality or identity is to be realized. Modern culture teaches us that we can develop ourselves only by looking inward, by detaching and leaving home, religious communities, and all other requirements so that we can make our own choices and determine who we are for ourselves. The funny thing about that quote is um, look at any coming of age movie on Netflix right now and that's the plot line right there. The boy that leaves home after high school, you know, to go find himself in Tibet or whatever. Anyways, just to put it in simpler terms though, this process of identity formation presented to us by culture says this, be who you want to be and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Follow your heart, aka the desires of your heart. Don't try to get affirmation from anybody else. Affirm yourself because you're doing what you want to do. And through that, you create your identity, who you want to be. That's an expressive individualism in a nutshell. And as a parent, this is really interesting to me because what I've come to see, what I've come to understand as I grasp this idea, that this idea is embedded everywhere, especially in Disney movies. And just hear me out, okay? I'm, I'm not hating on Disney. We still have a Disney Plus account. I'm not going to cancel that subscription. But I found it really prominent in so many Disney movie storylines and even songs. And this is the thing about songs, right? It works these ideas into your subconscious without you even realizing it. So to give you an example, um, the classic movie Frozen. Some of you know it. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Don't worry, I'm not going to play that song for you again, <laughs> especially if you're a parent, right, of multiple kids. Each one of our kids went through like a frozen cycle where this song was on repeat, but it's Let It Go. I'm actually going to invite Dan to sing it for us. Where, where is it? No, I'm joking. He's gone. But here's the lyrics to the song, okay? Just an excerpt. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. The idea is that we need to connect to some source deep within us to find our true selves, to be our true selves. We don't need a source outside of us. In this case, be it family or people or maybe God or some cosmic good or supernatural thing. Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, he puts it like this. I find myself not by self-giving to something outside, but through self-expression of something inside. The scary thing about this is this, as you flesh out this idea of self-expression, you can quickly see what's wrong with this idea. You can quickly see how it doesn't work. But the thing is, some of us live our lives as if this is true. And I know some of us uh, that I've had conversations that follow Jesus, that this has actually worked their way into how they follow Jesus. And that's a scary thing. But Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you need to deny yourself. And if you don't deny yourself, 
It will actually lead you away from finding your true self. And we're going to delve into that in a second. But while our natural tendency is to affirm oneself, to serve your own interest, and to look for, you know, advancement in this life or to pursue success, whatever that looks like, however you've defined it for yourself in this life, Jesus says, abandon that type of thinking. In fact, kill it. Put it to death, he says. That's why he adds in verse 24, take up your cross and follow me. See, what gets lost with us is when we read cross, right? Take up your cross. A lot of the times a nice idea or picture of a cross pops into our heads in modern day culture, right? Maybe that nice wooden carved cross popped up into your head or maybe a piece of jewelry that you often see around people's necks. Like nothing wrong with that, right? But it's just this nice, tidy, almost beautiful idea of the cross, right? But in this culture, when the disciples heard, take up your cross in this Jewish culture, it only meant one thing, and that's death. This dishonorable, shameful death that we just celebrated and reflected on on Good Friday. When they heard, take up your cross, the first thing they popped into their minds was torture. So when Jesus is saying, die to your own desires and your will for your life, they got it right away. They understood that uh, instead of accomplishing their desires and their will, what he was saying is put yourself in a place where God can download his desires into your life. That you're living out God's will for your life. Which sometimes, sometimes, because remember Jesus is calling them to follow his example Sometimes it includes suffering. Sometimes it includes discomfort. Sometimes it includes even physical death, which some of these disciples actually had to face. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, a famous theologian and follower of Jesus, rebelling against the Nazi regime, he put it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the call to following Jesus. This is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. And only when this is done, do you begin to move forward into figuring out who you are. You start to figure out who you, your truest self is. And I, I don't know what your cross is that you're going to have to bear when it comes to this life. I don't know what are the tough things or obstacles you're going to face directly or indirectly when it comes to being obedient to the call of God. You know, sometimes as we talked about, when it comes to suffering, a cross comes to you or you enter into suffering because of the effects of sin in the world that we live in, the fallen world that we live in. But some of you probably know that you are on the right track when it comes to following Jesus because it becomes uncomfortable. The step into following Jesus a lot of the times is uncomfortable but it leads to life. And to, just to get your minds thinking a little bit, uh, example from my own life, before me and my wife started um, in pastoral ministry or started working at our first church, we had a great life. Like we made uh, more money than I made probably combined. We both were working in the first 10 years of ministry and we were like 22. So we were doing well, we were living in our own apartment, um, you know, all the things in our life were great. And then God called me into ministry. And, and that decision of going into ministry, 
the first thing that I was called to deny was my salary. And so I started at this church that took a chance on me, you know, this young, really skater punk kid. And they're like, hey, we're going to give you a three-month probation to see if you can be, be a youth pastor and see if there's a calling on your life. And that three years obviously turned into 10 plus now. But in those early years, you know, there was a lot of sacrifice pursuing the call of God. There was a lot of sacrifice that when me and my wife, as we had kids, we couldn't afford to live on our own. So we moved into my in-laws for three years, you know, it's trying to survive off of $20,000 a year for a long time. But I wouldn't trade those early years for anything because in those moments, God was forming my identity. He was allowing false ideas of who I was or how to achieve purpose and influence in this world to fall away as he formed me into who he was calling me to be. And here's the thing. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus took the symbol of the cross like we talked about. The one thing that meant only death in this culture, but in one act of love, he redefined it. He redefined what it can mean for me and you, where now we look at the cross and we see life, not death. The way to true life. And here's the hope. When you follow Jesus, the suffering that you have to bear as you experience the evil of the world we live in and the effects of sin all around us, they don't have to destroy you, but they can actually refine you and remake you into who you were truly called to be. And that's the reality in this room for you if you follow Jesus here this morning. So, when you think you're following Jesus, right? What does that look like? What does that look like? It looks like full surrender. And here's the thing, in a room like this, here's what you have to wrestle with. Some of you haven't fully surrendered your life to Jesus. Some of you haven't fully denied yourself. You haven't died to those selfish desires. Instead, maybe you're trying to drag those desires into your relationship with Jesus. And I say that because I've experienced that. I've tried that myself. Because it's easier Instead of being, you know, uh, submitting yourself to God's will for your life, his perfect will, what you want to do is get God to bend to your will, right? That's our tendency. You want the benefits of Jesus without the personal sacrifice. And some of you think that all you need is, as Dan maybe touched on last week, is that, you know, moment of salvation. That I am saved and I'm going to get into heaven membership card and you're good and the rest of your life you can live whatever way you want. And instead of picking up your cross daily and dying to your selfish desires, you compromise and try to make for yourself a new spirituality that fits snugly into your current lifestyle. One famous philosopher by the name of Dallas Willard, he calls this barcode faith. Barcode faith. So think of the grocery store, right? Think of the barcodes on all those different, uh, you know, Campbell's chicken noodle soup or whatever you buy, stovetop. That's still my uh, opinion, the best stuffing ever. <laughs> but whatever it is, okay, the scanner responds only to the barcode of the product. It makes no difference what's in the bottle or the package that it bears, whether the sticker is right 
or not? Has anybody been at like self checkout and by by accident the machine malfunctions and you, you know, swiped candy and it says it's apples or something like that? But the calculator responds through its electronic eye to the barcode and totally disregards everything else. So if the ice cream sticker is on the dog food, the dog food is ice cream. So far as the scanner knows or cares. That's what some of you are doing. True Christian faith is definitely one of scandalous grace. The grace that we've been shown, it's a free gift, but it was never meant to be abused by living our lives whatever way we want it. Discipleship starts at that moment of salvation. It doesn't end there. Because if it ends there for you in that moment of salvation and you're like, okay, I don't need to do anything for the rest of my life and I can just, you know, wait till I go to heaven or, or, or whatever, you miss out in this whole process of identity formation and finding out who you are truly called to be, who you truly are. And Jesus, Jesus alludes to this at the beginning of verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Another translation puts it like this, whoever clings to his life will lose it, right? Whoever tries to hold on to those desires and bring them into their new life, hold on to those desires that you have in your old life and bring them into your new life. It doesn't work like that, right? By forming yourself, by forming your identity through expressive individualism, following your heart, the desires of your heart, clinging on to those things, affirming yourself, doing whatever you want. Here's the problem with this, right? Our desires are always changing. That's the first problem with this expressive individualism. Our desires are always changing, right? Example of this in my own life is that in high school, I went about identity formation in this way, following my desires. Uh, when it came to how I presented myself to my classmates and the people around me. And so um, my family moved back to California for grade six for a small stint. And so when I came back to Canada, I thought, okay, great. This is a great moment to like reimagine myself and represent myself to my classmates that I was coming back to in a new, maybe cool way. And a lot of the times in high school, like you do, you get your identity from the clothes you wear, right? And so what I did was I just recreated myself as a skater. So I got really into skateboarding, obviously in California, I brought that back. And so I started skateboarding, wearing all the clothes, all the brands, you name it. But this is what happened. As soon as like it became kind of popular, um, not, not because of me, I was like the only skater in my school, but it just became popular in culture. Other kids started uh, wearing skater clothes and picking up a skateboard from West 49, all that kind of stuff, right? That store doesn't even exist anymore. I just realized that. Anyways, um, I started to lose my authentic self. I was like, okay, I'm not unique anymore. So what happened? That desire to be unique and authentic, it, it changed like my clothes did. And all of a sudden to recreate myself, I started to decide to become a surfer. Even though there's no waves here, I'm just like, California, <laughs> surfer, I'll just recreate myself. And the funny thing about that is the first time I ever went surfing was in Oregon in my first year of university. 
and I recreated myself and it, I could go on and on and on. But as my uh, clothes changed, so did my identity. So did my uh, desires change in some sense of how I express, expressed myself or wanted to express myself. And that's what we know. Our, our desires are always changing. And the second problem with that comes to uh, desires and building our identity around desires is that our desires are in conflict sometimes, right? This is a short point, okay? And I can make it really simple. I want to be healthy, right? I want to live so that I can see my grandkids. So every once in a while, I try to go to the gym and work out. Obviously, it's not working that great. But at the same time, I want to be healthy. I have a desire to be healthy. But sometimes when I'm driving home, I just want to be honest with you. I just crave a junior bacon cheeseburger from Wendy's. Anybody with me, right? It's easy to just like spend out. Seth knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Amen, right? So, uh, right? Or think about it another way. Like maybe you have a more refined palate than I do, okay? Like why do the best parts of the steak, right, Reg? Like have to be the worst for you or that brisket that Reg made for us on Thursday, right? Sometimes our desires are conflicting. That's the second problem. And here's the third problem, okay? When you look inside, discover your deepest desires and dreams and express them, you must do this yourself and not rely on others to affirm and tell you who you are, right? But here's the thing about that. It's impossible. That is impossible. You can't get identity through self-recognition. It must come from others. How do I know this? Very simple example. Anybody remember... American Idol, American Idol, right? Okay, so just think about that. Okay, if you're old enough to remember Eric, American Idol, nowadays it's like the voice, like same idea, just in case you don't know what I'm talking about. But two words, okay? It's a name. Just look up William Hung, She Bangs, right? I promise it's a clean video on YouTube, okay? And you just look at that video. And you look at those old auditions, right? You can think you're a good singer all you want, AKA self-recognition, right? But in order to truly be a good singer, somebody else needs to affirm that in you. And that's with, that, that's with a lot of things in life, right? And you could probably think of multiple examples. And here's the point, an identity that leads us to understand our own self-worth doesn't work that way. In order to gain an actual understanding of our worth and our value, we need someone outside of ourselves to say we have great worth and value. And listen to this. In fact, the greater the worth of that someone or someones, the more power they have to instill in you a sense of self-worth. Hence why on those shows, in our culture, that's very, you know, obsessed with celebrity, they have celebrities affirming these people as good singers or affirming these people as talented. People in our culture who we look at to have great worth and value, right? But that's why Jesus says, if we cling to our desires and try to live our lives our way, we will lose our life. When looking at the original languages, right? And, uh, and when we come across this word life, we actually, uh, in the original uh, word, uh, what was it, Greek, Dan, yeah, whatever that language was, uh, it, it, you'll find the word psyche, okay, which we, where we get the word psychology from. And if you look deeply into the idea of this word being presented to us, you find that what it's mean is like the English word soul 
or the center of our being is what trying to be expressed there, or our truest self is all contained in this word life. So you lose yourself is what he's saying. You lose your identity. You don't find it through this approach, uh, through expressive individualism. You actually lose the core to who you are. So here's the question. How do you find it then? Jesus gives us the answer. He says it in the next part of verse 25. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. For me. It's not apart from me. It's when you follow him. What he's calling you, this is not just self-denial for the sake of self-denial. This is when you come and follow him, you make that decision to lose yourself. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. Simply put, this is what I want you to get this morning. To find yourself, you need to lose yourself. To find yourself, your truest self, you need to lose yourself. You need to die to your selfish desires. You need to die to whatever idea, direction, will you have for your life and fully surrender it over to Jesus. Why? Because this is the only way to achieve an identity that will last, that doesn't change no matter the circumstance or the situation or the people that you're around or what they say about you. This is the only way to build a strong identity that can weather the storms of life, be it retirement or the loss of a job or a change of career or the loss of an achievement that you worked all your life to achieve. And this only happens when you stop trying to find yourself and start serving others and start serving God. That's the paradox of how this works. And the amazing thing is when you surrender your life to God, you're surrendering your life, your identity, your will, your desires to the God that knows you inside and out, that knows you better than you know yourself. You're surrendering yourself to the one true God who is in the work of trying to bring everybody back to this place we see in the garden where we were, we're whole, where we were perfect as human beings, the way that he created Adam and Eve before sin entered the garden. And what I'm talking about is that back then in the garden, these humans, they knew who they were. They knew who they were called to be. They knew that they had meaning. They knew their purpose. They knew what they were called to do. And Jesus, being the new Adam, he shows us what it truly means to be human, to image God. And the crux of that remaking when it comes to us happens as we come into a relationship with Christ. Verse 25 again, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Verse 26 says this, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I like this other version because it's a little bit more punchier. It says it like this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Notice the words there, right? profit, gain, exchange, or forfeits in one translation. These are, these are financial terms. These are all terms that are communicating value. Jesus is asking, what is the value of your life? What is the value of your soul? 
right? And what can a person give besides money to trade for his life or his or her soul or his or her true self? Remember what I said earlier, in order to gain an actual understanding of our worth and our value, we need someone outside of ourselves to say we have great worth and value. In fact, the greater that worth of that someone or someones, the more power they have to instill in us a sense of self and worth. So listen to me. In the eyes of God, the only opinion in the universe that actually counts, we were so valuable to him that while we were messed up, sinning, holding on to those selfish desires, he sent his son, the son of God, the one who had the highest honor, the highest name, the highest identity possible. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2, 6, my paraphrase, for who through he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why? So that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we could have everlasting life, an everlasting name, an identity that lasts forever, that does not change with the situation, and that can never be taken from us. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Our identity is not achieved, but it's received. Our identity is not achieved, but it's received. As soon as you, res- as soon as you surrender your life to Jesus, your, I, your life, your identity, everything is hidden in Christ where now he sees you through the lens of Jesus as his beloved son in whom he's well-pleased, or his beloved daughter in whom he's well-pleased. And this reconciliation to Christ is key. Christ is the source of life for the whole of creation. Christ is life. Therefore, if we are to rediscover who we really are, we must find the blueprint of who we are meant to be in the person of Christ. Jesus, the new Adam. This is how we find our truest selves, the person that God created us to be. Therefore, what he wants us to accomplish as we live our lives out for his glory, no matter what vocation we find ourselves in. Here at PKC, uh, we've adopted this phrase to express this. Jesus just isn't our savior, but he's also our model. The model of what it means to be human, truly human. Jesus isn't the only identity that lasts too. You need to get this. Jesus isn't the only identity that lasts. It's actually our only identity that we have. We aren't actually able to choose our identity. That's a postmodern fallacy because we love this idea of choice. No, Jesus's identity is the only identity that we actually have when it comes to being human beings. God's identity for us is the only real identity. It's our identity, whether we believe it or not. And here is the astonishing thing about this truth when it comes to you as a unique individual. Because I know some of you are thinking in this moment, like, you know, if we're all being made into the image of God, what does that mean? Are we all going to be clones, right? Are we all going to end up being like stormtroopers, all just following Jesus together, right? All dressed in white, right? No, here's the beauty of it. One of my favorite authors that I was introduced to uh, in this season of my life that I did a lot of counseling with a psychologist around leadership development and who God was calling to me, me to be uniquely as a leader. She introduced me in these sessions to uh, this author. His name is Robert Mulholland Jr. or M. Robert Mulholland Jr. And I love what he says in one of his books, uh, Invitation to a Journey, when it comes to our identity in Christ. He says this, 
when all of us are perfectly formed in the image of Christ, we will not be a group of clones. In fact, we find our unique individuality only to the extent that we are fully formed in the image of Christ. It's only in Christ that we find our individuality. Trying to go against that is operating in a way, in an identity that you were never supposed to operate in, and it will only lead to one place and one outcome, death. Wasting your life and death. It's like this, okay? Imagine your life was like this. You were created to be a box cutter, okay? That's what you were created to be, a box cutter. So what does a box cutter do? They cut boxes. Thank you, Audrey. Right? So if you took that box cutter, right, and you tried to cut cement, Jim, right, what, what would happen? Quick answer. Yeah, failure. Yes. Right? The box cutter would break. It would break. As you're trying to cut, uh, cut the cement, it would break, right? The same thing is what happens to our lives when we go against this whole idea of identity formation Jesus' way. Right? When it comes to our soul and our identity and everything else that contains our life, it slowly breaks down. It slowly deteriorates. A lot of the times you find yourselves emptier than when you started in that process of expressive individualism. But if you follow Jesus, here's the hope for you. No matter how you formed your identity up to this point, if you follow Jesus, if you surrender your life to him through the Holy Spirit, through the process of sanctification, which is a fancy word that just means that he makes you look more and more like Jesus each and every day. The Holy Spirit helps you act like Jesus, love like Jesus, think like Jesus, and bring glory to God like Jesus did. So that in this life, you actually experience true life. Here's the question. In every generation, in every generation, there seems to be a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word. So here's the question for you this morning. What would it look like if you were one of those people this morning? What would it look like if you took this call to discipleship seriously this morning? To come and to die. Here's the invitation I want to leave you with this morning. Again, a quote. And I love this truth. One of the deepest mysteries about Christ reference life, meaning your identity in Christ, is that only by losing all, by becoming utterly devoid of all self-reference dynamics, by becoming nothingness, do we gain all. Do we gain a life whose joys are ravishing, its peace profound, its humility the deepest, its power world-shaking, its love enveloping, its simplicity that of a trusting child. This morning, the invitation to all of us is to experience that joy, that peace, that power, that love as we reflect and move into understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. Let's pray.